Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. Uh, you know, we like to disrupt common narratives and constructs on this show. And we're, we're honored today to have Congressman Hakeem Jeffries from the 8th Congressional District in New York. Uh, good friend of mine. I also want to say he is a member of Kappa Alpha Psi. Yo, yo. So, uh, but he's done a lot of great work. He's doing a lot of great work. Uh, really having a great impact. And I just want to say it's an honor to have him on his show. It's an honor to be you. here. Good hey. to see you. So let's, let's get right to it. This is a crazy time. Uh, crazy environment to be in politics. And uh, why did you get into this arena of public service and put you know, yourself and your family in this? Because this is a lot to put yourself through. What, why, what moves you every day to want to do this? Well, you know, I was born in Brooklyn Hospital, raised in central Brooklyn uh, by two working class parents. They did a phenomenal job in sacrificing to make sure that my younger brother, who is in Ohio, as you know, as well, teacher at uh, Ohio State University yeah. and History Department, uh, is raising his family there. But my parents wanted to make sure that my younger brother and I uh, had the best shot at pursuing the American dream. So did the Central Brooklyn community where we were raised, the Cornerstone Baptist Church. Right. Um, and after I graduated from law school, I knew that I wanted to use my law degree and the skills of training, the experience that I had in some way to give back to the communities uh, where I had been raised and eventually decided uh, that I wanted to do advocacy in part as a public servant, as a member of the state legislature. Ultimately, right. I was elected to the uh, New York State Assembly, served a few terms there and then had the opportunity to come serve uh, in Congress. And it's been you know, the highest privilege in my life. These are challenging times. Yeah, they are. <laughs> my first four years in Congress, Barack Obama was president. We've obviously transitioned in a very different way yeah, to a, a very quick, different a, individual. Yeah, I would say so. That's a big change. <laughs> and people back at home have said, well, how, how do you go from Barack Obama to so-and-so who's sitting in the White House right now? Right. And my view has been there was no better time uh, to be in Congress than serving alongside Barack Obama. But there's no more important time mm. than right now dealing with what's coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with Donald Trump as president. Right. And I want to talk more about that, but let's talk about things you've accomplished, because people can just assume that the only thing that's been done is that you that we've been fighting that we but Democrats have been fighting with Trump. But it's not true. And you've actually got some things accomplished, particularly I want to talk about the First Step Act and uh, the process of getting there. I remember even some liberals criticizing people for working with Donald Trump to get this accomplished, um, which is amazing to me. But the First Step Act did pass and it mattered. There's real criminal justice reform. What do you think is the next step? Uh, that was obviously a good first step in taking in criminal justice reform and thousands of people out of jail is good. But we, we, I think we all know we have a broken criminal justice system. What's the next step? Well, as you've indicated, we do have a very flawed and broken dysfunctional criminal justice system. In 1971, when Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs, there were less than 350,000 people, I believe, who were incarcerated at the time. Yep. Today, there's 2.2 million. More than any place in the world. More than any other place in the world per capita, including China and Russia combined. Yep. Hard to believe, but go ahead. Hard to believe. Disproportionate amount of those folks, as you know, black and Latino. Of course. Or from low-income communities of every race, including poor white communities. Yep. And... Um, a significant number of those individuals, nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah. And so we came together in the last Congress and said, we have to do something about overcriminalization in America yeah. and the mass incarceration epidemic. 
And we passed the First Step Act, which was meaningful criminal justice Absolutely. reform as a down payment on breaking up this system. And the question for us now is where do we go from here? I think the ultimate goal has to be, particularly at the federal level, some folks will, will say that, well, the majority of people are incarcerated at the state level. That is true. A little less than 200,000 people incarcerated at the federal level. Thousands of people have gotten out as a result of the First Step Act. We want to continue to bring that number down. But I think the federal government, because of the 1994 crime bill, has a responsibility to do more. Agree. Because that 1994 crime bill, where they allocated, I think it was $9 billion in money to the states Correct. for prison construction. To incentivize criminalization of people, essentially. To incentivize the criminalization of people and did it in very specific ways in saying, for you to get access to this money, we need to see truth in sentencing, three yep. strikes, you're out, mandatory minimums. So the acceleration of mass incarceration in America, because at the time, I think there were about 900,000 people incarcerated in 1994, which has still dramatically increased yes. in part as a result of the crime bill. Yeah. So we have a responsibility, I believe, uh, to reverse engineer the damage that was done. Completely agree. And that should be the objective as an end goal. And we can continue to take steps to move to that place as we uh, travel along this journey. We had uh, Lewis Reed from Cut 50 on the show to talk about his experience. I know you work with him on the on the First Step Act. And he said, a, you know, an alarming statistic that, you know, if we even if they achieve their goal of cutting uh, the population, the prison population in half, which would be tremendous, we still have more people in prison than anywhere else in the world, which is just incredible when you when you just think about that and step back. You know, thoughts on how we incentivize prosecutors and others to think about how they fight crime and not necessarily it's not necessarily not necessarily measuring by the amount of convictions but the amount but how justice is served and second question how do we humanize people in this process uh and not just and, and not just paint people as you know well they went to prison they got what they deserved how do we humanize them through this process well um taking the second question first one of the things that was so important about working on the first step back is because it was bipartisan in nature. Yeah. And if you're going to unravel the mass incarceration epidemic in America, uh, the best way to do it is to depoliticize the effort yeah. around criminal justice. And the best way to depoliticize the effort is to partner together. Yeah. And so you had the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, uh, the ACLU and the Koch brothers, the NAACP, yeah. uh, and the Heritage Foundation, and all points in between working together, the lead Republican uh, sponsor, Doug Collins, is right. a conservative uh, Republican from rural Georgia. Yeah. Partnering with me as a lead Democrat, and I'm from what's sometimes referred to as the People's Republic of Brooklyn. <laughs> and we came together because it was an American problem that we're trying to solve. Right. On behalf of Americans, right? People who may have made a mistake, yeah. but have paid their debt to society, and now... We have a responsibility to make sure that they can successfully reenter society transformed and in a way that reduces recidivism. That's good for them. That's good for the community. That's good for their families. And by the way, it's good for the taxpayer yeah. if you can dramatically reduce recidivism uh, because you can reallocate resources into other things to help everyday Americans. So 
uh, that we were successful in the humanization aspect and pulling together a broad coalition. Right. Uh, and we need to build upon that. In terms of changing the mindset, talked about prosecutors who I think yeah. in many ways have been have been part of the problem. I, I, I say they absolutely have been. And, you know, have looked at convictions as the end goal, not justice correct. as the end goal. Just like, you know, when they see us, that, you know, in the, that happened in New York. That's right? correct. That, that to me, when they see us was an example of something that happens and that we as Americans have said, this is what we accept because we think this is the way to keep people safe. And I think that just undermines justice. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And it tears at the social, economic, racial fabric of yeah. our society, particularly because African-American communities tend to disproportionately suffer from an out-of-control criminal justice system when they see us was a classic example and a tragic example of that. I think there's a lot of literature now and many police departments that have been blessed with leaders who are trying to move those departments in a more progressive direction, as well as the emergence of the progressive prosecutor phenomenon, yes. have begun to conclude that there's a difference between a warrior mentality and a guardian mentality. The warrior mentality views the community as the enemy, as if you are in a war. Right. And there you have dehumanization take place. The guardian mentality views the community as an asset to be protected and hugged and loved. And absent the dehumanization that exists with that type of approach, that we're there to be guardians of the community right. at the police level or beyond, uh, then you start to see people through a different lens and, and to understand the humanity that exists amongst everyone. No, that actually makes sense. And uh, getting people to understand that is, it has been very difficult, but you, we certainly have made progress. So, you know, I want to thank you for what you've done there. So let's, 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 let us move a little forward. Can you think of a time when you actually failed in, in it had to be Congress, it can be in life, and what you learned from that? Because I think people need to, people see you now, they see a successful congressman who's, you know, I think he's going to be, he's going to be Speaker of the House at one point. He's not going to say it, but I'll say it for him. But You've had success, but I think people think this is instant. Talk about, you know, the, some struggles you had to get here and maybe one lesson that comes out in your mind and what you learned from that to make you a better leader now. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think that if you look at almost every field of human endeavor, the people who have reached the height of success across the board in almost every instance have experienced disappointment yep. or what some may characterize as professional failure. But you don't ever really see that. No. You just see when they're able to achieve some measure of success. Exactly. But, you know, my journey, for instance, when I decided to make the transition from practicing attorney to candidate, hopefully public servant, uh, was filled with disappointment. Yeah. As I started to make that transition, you know, I ran for the New York State Assembly twice against a very powerful incumbent in central Brooklyn and lost twice. Wow. And well, at a certain point, wow. I'm sure, you know, there were folks around who were saying, well, maybe this public service thing <laughs> ain't for you. Right. Yeah. And it's hard losing. I've lost twice too. So it's not a, 
It's never a fun experience. Losing is not a fun experience, no. though a lot of us have lost, including, by the way, Barack Obama having lost his first congressional race and Bill Clinton having lost his first congressional yep. race. What you can learn from that, and they're widely regarded as sure. two of the greatest political talents, perhaps, of the last 50 or so years uh, in America, right. both of whom achieved success at the highest level in terms of becoming president, uh, and leader of the free world, they were both knocked down on the ground. Winston Churchill once said that in life, success uh, is not final, failure is not fatal, all that matters is the courage to continue. Yeah. Now, I put it a different way. A knockdown is different than a knockout. All you right. might call that the Hakeem Jeffries remix. <laughs> all right, we'll call it that. Right? <laughs> and I've said, almost everybody gets knocked down. Yeah. I've been knocked down in a variety of ways, including losing twice right. for an assembly seat. But you have to learn from the knockdown, have the perseverance and the wherewithal to pick yourself up, as so many others have done, including those whose shoulders we stand on, our ancestors, right. went through tremendous adversity, but worked their way through it. We can as well. Yep. Pick yourself up, keep moving forward. And, uh, and ultimately work toward achieving your dream. And you look at people who've achieved success at almost every level, Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan come to mind. There was adversity in their journeys. Yeah, there's a lot of it. And these are phenomenally accomplished and talented individuals. If they can experience failure, any of us can experience failure and challenge, learn from it, the knockdown being different than the knockout. So um, impeachment, I want to talk a little bit about that. It's speaking of challenging times, I want to, I want to talk a little, a lot about that, actually. Um, you know, we just had the, the, the top diplomat appointed by President Trump, if I'm correct, Bill Taylor, essentially testified that, you know, there was, there, there was, there was a quid pro quo or there was money conditioned upon uh, uh, money going to Ukraine that Ukraine would do what, Trump wants in terms of investigating his political opponents, which is clear to us that I think he's betraying our nation. I think he's a traitor by even doing that because uh, it's advancing the interests of not America, but it's advancing the interests of Russia. What case are we going to make to the American people that this is a clear and present threat to, you know, it's not about politics. This is a clear and present threat to the principles of America. How do we make that case right now? So they can make it clear that this is not about politics, because I don't think it is. You're absolutely right. It's not about politics. We didn't come to Congress to impeach him, a president. We came to Congress to get things done on behalf of everyday Americans and those with privilege to represent. We have arrived at this place because of the president's own conduct. He betrayed his oath of office. He abused his power. He undermined our national security by pressuring a foreign government to target an American citizen for political gain. Yeah. And at the same time, withhold in an irresponsible fashion, $391 million in military and economic assistance to Ukraine to put them under duress as part of a high pressure tactic to get them to effectively interfere in the 2020 election. Yeah. That is textbook abuse of power. And the evidence of wrongdoing is hiding in plain sight. You have- He admitted it. He's admitted it. <laughs> he just said the, it. Rough transcript, 
right, of his own words and the call on the July 25th. The chief of staff 25th. said it, uh, Mark Mulvaney, Mulvaney said right? it. Mick Mulvaney has acknowledged that was basically a confession. It was. We did it, and he basically said, get over it. Yeah. No, we're not going to get over it. We're going to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, and present the truth to the American people, no matter where that leads us. Because the House, as an institution, right, we're a separate and co-equal branch of government. We don't work for Donald Trump. We work for the American people. Correct. We don't work for any president, Democrat or Republican. That's what the founders wanted. Yeah. Right. And we have a constitutional responsibility to serve as a check and balance on the out of control executive branch. Yeah. Because the founders didn't want a king. They didn't want a monarch. They didn't want a dictator. They wanted a democracy. Correct. And so what we're doing is defending our democracy in the manner in which the framers intended. We've got to do our constitutional responsibility and we'll see where that leads us. So I, I, w- I would say that, you know, this to me from I think we I mean, don't you think we have enough to ask one, one question and follow up? Don't you think we have enough? I know you have to go through a process to get all the facts, but based upon what we have now, there is enough to impeach. Would, would you, would you, I mean, with, with what we already have with Russia, with what we have clearly now that's matched up with what every single witness has said, that there was, there was a, whatever you want to call it, quid pro quo, Don Colleone made him an offer he couldn't refuse, whatever you want to call this, he was using his power to make sure that he can go after a political opponent. You know, don't we have enough to impeach right now? Well, it's a good question, but we are going to respect the process that has been put in place by the speaker, which is to allow Chairman Schiff and the Intel Committee, in partnership with the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Oversight Committee, rest in peace, Elijah Cummings, certainly yeah. will continue to draw inspiration from him. Absolutely. But those three committees, led by Adam Schiff and the Intel Committee, are going to complete their investigation. Yeah. And once they complete their investigation, they're going to make recommendations to the Judiciary Committee as it relates to potential articles of impeachment. I will say, as I've indicated, the evidence of wrongdoing is hiding in plain sight. The president needs to make the case to the extent that he can that there's exculpatory evidence or information. But the timeline speaks for itself. Congress allocated $391 million in military and security aid to Ukraine uh, because Ukraine is a friend. Russia is a foe. Correct. And this is helping Russia's interests. Russia wants to take over Ukraine for their own interests against the United States. There's no doubt about it. So, it, is, so let me ask this yeah. quick question. I think this is important for people to understand. You know, I understand there's a process to impeachment. So I think a more important question is framing the narrative because what we know that Republicans today stormed the investigation, they stormed a, de- a private deposition because they're willing to create a headline to make it seem like they're being locked out, right? They are willing to go to every extent to frame the narrative. I like to call the people in the party in that party right now cowards and traitors. You know, it depends on which side. You know, there are people that know what's the, that this is wrong. They won't speak up, and there are those that are willingly going along with I believe what is, what is betraying our nation and putting our security at risk. Can we clearly state that this seems to be? It seems like we have someone who has betrayed our nation who is a traitor based upon what we know right now. We, we haven't gone through the process, but this is in no one's interest but Russia to me. So I can't see how this helps America, whether you're a Democrat, moderate. He is betrayed. Can we say that he's betraying our nation? He is a traitor because I, I do think there needs to be some thought about the narrative. I think the facts are on our side. What what what, what concerns me is the narrative. That makes well, sense. That makes sense. Absolutely. And we have to be clear, concise, and compelling. 
and what we communicate to the American people. And what I will say is what I have continued to say is that the president has betrayed his oath of office. He's betrayed the American people. He's betrayed the United States Constitution. And until he presents some exculpatory evidence to the contrary, which right. appears to be non-existent, because the more that we learn, the worse that it gets yeah. for Donald Trump, uh, then we're going to continue to proceed with the seriousness and solemnity uh, that is required in this particular instance. The president effectively turned the Oval Office into the Trump 2020 re-election campaign headquarters. What his behavior has shown is that he's willing to do anything to elevate his own personal political interests and subordinate our national security interests, yeah. right? As you've pointed out, Ukraine is a democracy, Russia's a dictatorship. Ukraine is currently uh, under invasion by Russian-backed separatists in Crimea. The United States is probably the only thing standing between Vladimir Putin and Ukraine being completely overrun. And in that context, Donald Trump withheld the $391 million in aid that was allocated in a bipartisan way. Yeah. Mitch McConnell tried to get an answer as to where this money was twice during the summer, and even he couldn't get an answer. Why? Because there is no good one. Donald Trump was doing this to try to target someone who he viewed as a political threat, right. undermining the very fabric of our democracy. Well, and I, and I think so, explaining that to people in a way that is clear, because I, I think people, and they have unfortunately been successful in getting people to accept some level of corruption. I think they say, this is politics, there's always some quid pro quo, people are doing this uh, because this is what politicians do, and at least, like, he's being honest about it. That's what, that's what people are saying. I don't agree with this, it's like, well, if he honestly took money from me and told me that he did it, then is, a, is, that, is that okay? We just let him commit the crime? Uh, that doesn't matter to me, but I believe uh, Democrats and Democrats in the House need to really understand that I don't think the corruption argument is going to work. I think we have to really get to the fact that what you're saying and beginning to say that he is betraying our nation, uh, he is, and, what, and, and making them understand that this is not, this is not about politics. If he, can, if he can target, it's Joe Biden right now, but in the future, maybe it's you. Or maybe he doesn't step down because there, when, when there's no rule of law, he can do anything that he can do anything. And pe other people need to know that what's at stake is the very idea of America. Well, that's correct. And you have hundreds of national security professionals who worked in both Republican and Democratic administrations who have said the impeachment inquiry is justified. And this was early on. Right. And the information here is disturbing in the context of the abuse of power the president engaged in and the undermining of our national security. Yeah. And we've been very clear uh, that when there's a president engaging in out of control behavior, willing to undermine the safety, security and well-being of the American people, then the entire republic is at risk Doesn't of that falling make him a apart. Isn't that fair? I mean, like, I only say that because Joe Walsh, I say this because I think language is important and I wouldn't come to this conclusion now. Uh, I mean, at the beginning, but now I think after a clear pattern of Russia, the Mueller investigation, I read most of that boring report, but it was very disturbing. Um, and this is a clear pattern that this is trying to advance the interests of Russia, uh, whether it's intentional or not for Trump, it is advancing Russia's interests. And this is, as you say, betraying our nation. And that seems pretty close to, to being a traitor, like Joe Walsh said, 
who like is there a reason you think why Democrats are hesitant to say that? Well, about I haven't Trump? followed Joe Walsh closely in terms of his perspective on well, this. Well, he just said that. I just like right. what do you, I, I just what think, I will like, say. Well, listen, I think that I think that we shouldn't get caught up in throwing rhetorical firebombs at the president of the United States of America right. when we're in the midst of an investigation that needs to be serious and solemn. Sure. And all we have yeah. to do is present the truth to the American people. The story speaks for itself. The evidence of wrongdoing is hiding in plain sight. The American people are smart enough to draw their own conclusions. Though we can frame our perspective, right. and as we've said, this is about betrayal, this is about abuse of power, this is about national security. Right. This is about the integrity of our elections. Sure. And fundamentally, this is about the United States Constitution. No, I agree. It's about the United States Constitution and undermining the rule of law. I think we got to hammer that over and over and over again. Um, it is a serious investigation. Let's say if you get to that point and you get past that, I guess that's the next step because it's what we know is they are. It's sunny right now in D.C., but in Trump world, it's raining and people will believe that. Because it will be fed to them over and over and over and over again. All, the only thing I have to say, and this is not to you because you have been out there, but I think it's just, I, I think I share a general frustration that you'll hear out of many. Uh, we need to speak as, with, a, with as much conviction on the truth as they do for absolute made up lies. And I think doing that will make sure that the people, because the American people are not going to be able to understand, and not that they're not smart, it's just that no one has time to look through the 15-page report today of, uh, of, of Bill Taylor's testimony. If they look through it, it's really clear, right? Yeah. If you take the time, it, there's no doubt in my mind that he was he laid out the case that this is a this is a clear and present threat to the United States of America, the person in this office. That's what's going on. And notwithstanding the fact that you have somebody like Bill Taylor, 50 uh, plus year, who's career, a Republican appointed by him, who's a right. <laughs> An appointee of the Trump administration and a previous Republican appointee, someone who was a West Point graduate, someone who was a Vietnam War veteran, and yet you have Republican members of the House of Representatives who are part of what I refer to as the cover-up caucus, running around Capitol Hill, behaving like fools in order to tap dance for the puppet master at yep. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, tells you what you need to know about the shenanigans on the other side of the aisle. Our view is... We're not going to get into the theatrics yeah. because we have a responsibility really just to follow the facts as they exist. That's right. disturbing enough. Yes. Apply the law, be guided by the Constitution and speak truth to power and bring the truth to the American people. No, well, I look, I agree. And I am hopeful based upon the American people. But I'm also understanding that it that who you're up against in terms of their ability to distract, their ability to divide should not be underestimated. And I just, want, I just think that's really important to keep in mind. It's the reason why, you know, uh, when Bill Taylor had the testimony the other day, he brought up like, oh, this is a lynching. Like he did that, you know, he wanted to say some outrageous statement to get the focus on his crazy statement so the focus is not on Bill Taylor. I tell people, if you want to know about lynching, go watch Harry Tubman. If you want to know what's going on right now with Trump, just pay attention to what's going on in Congress. He's trying, he, he's trying to cover up for the fact that he is betraying this nation. So um, I just think we got to be vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Well, I, think that's, I think that's correct. And I think that what you saw on the Democratic side is that uh, members uh, were appropriately critical yes. of the comparison because the lynching epidemic 
in this country is, is a stain on our society. Absolutely. With thousands of innocent lives, mostly African-American, who were targeted because of the color of their skin, trying to bring to life just the promise of citizenship. Correct. Embedded in the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. Uh, and were killed as a result of it, lives ruined, communities ruined, families ruined. Uh, and to make that comparison, obviously, uh, is historically ignorant. Yeah. Fans the flames yep. uh, of race baiting that the president has been good at. And we were appropriately critical. You were. But we also, at the same time, made sure to point out this is designed as a distraction. You guys did a great job. The media followed him, though. Right. This is this is what this is what he does. He knows what he's doing. And his goal was to get the media. They went back to they went back to what they needed to. But that is our goal. And we have to keep, as you say, you know, reminding people and framing the narrative to final two questions. And then, and then I'll let you go. Kind of kind of a couple of uh, legacy questions. You have a committee of three people who can advise you. They're living or dead. Who are those three people and why? Well, that's a fascinating uh, statement. Well, I'd say. You know, A. Leon Higginbotham Jr., okay. uh, who was the first chief justice of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, okay. uh, an African-American and uh, you know, prominent civil rights mind. Many people thought that had Bill Clinton been president when Thurgood Marshall passed away uh, and been able to make that appointment, that A. Leon Higginbotham Jr. would have been the person to fill that vacancy. Yeah. He was that powerful. So I'd suggest him. Um, he's passed away. Certainly, um, say my grandmother, Nana. Okay. Uh, who, Why Nana? Well, she had that, that old-fashioned wisdom. Yeah. Um, she was a woman of limited means, but well, well, wise give me, beyond her years. Give me one of her lines you remember from her. Well... You know, when, when, when my brother and I were growing up, my younger brother, he would all, she would always tell us the story of Cain and Abel. So much so that I don't think my brother and I ever got into a physical altercation. And it was because she had drilled into us the consequences never? of Wait, doing you two brothers, y'all never fought. Never ever. got into a physical altercation. So, wait, what, are we defining as like, you guys never grabbed each other and wrestled? Or? That is correct. Wow. That's right? amazing. Never got violent with each other. Okay. Now, it's possible on the basketball court that they're going to push a shove every now and then. Oh, there comes this. But in part, it was because of her drilling into us that Cain and Abel story. Right. Um, the other thing she did was fascinating is that you know, every time my brother and I, when I was growing up, she would say, you and your brother, you're going to graduate from elementary school, then you're going to graduate from middle school, then you're going to graduate from high school, then you're going to go to college. And then after you go to college, you're going to graduate from either law school or business school, go right. get a PhD. I said, Grandma, we're going to be in school our entire lives. <laughs> but she drilled into us from her perspective right. the sense that for you and your brother, Hassan, to succeed, you're going to have to get an education and go above and beyond what might otherwise be expected of someone coming out of central Brooklyn. And interestingly enough, work twice as hard, get half as much. That's right. And though she was a woman of limited means, recognizing that every time we graduated, starting in elementary school, she would give us five hundred dollars in cash. Oh wow, that's that's a, that's a motivator, right? Now that was serious motivation, <laughs> by the way. 
Now, I made the mistake of telling that story in front of my two young sons oh, who yeah, said, Dad, so, yep. you've been shortchanging us all these years. Oh, yeah. They want that money now. Right. But that was part of Nano's wisdom as it relates to motivating her two grandsons to achieve as much success as they could achieve. A whole lot of other wisdom Great. that I could share, but... That's a good one. What's the third, what's well, the certainly third person? Her, I'd say it's probably the third person would be someone who I serve with here, and that's John Lewis. Oh, wow. Okay. It's not just sort of the conscience of the Congress in many ways, but the conscience of the country. And we think about John Lewis's life story and how at such a young age, yeah. he stood up for what was right, sacrificed, almost lost his life, but continues to believe in the promise of America. Yes. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's been an honor to be able to serve with him yeah. uh, for my six and a half plus years in Congress. Final question. Uh, you have a billboard, or we can make it a Google ad, or just to be a little more modern, that summarizes your belief. It could be a statement. It could be a saying. What does that say and why? Well, I think I would simply say, um, you know, for us at the end of the day, right? that everything that I've tried to do as a public servant, that's just five words for us, has really been uh, for the communities that I'm privileged to serve. And that's just the blessing of being able to work on people's behalf. When you come to work, when your vocation is to try to make life better for everyday Americans, for the least, the lost, the left behind, for the communities that send you to Washington to make life better, to stand up for them. And I think what we certainly on the House Democratic side come to do, we've said our agenda is for the people. Um, you know, back at home, I'd say it would be for us, right? The district that I represent, the eighth, people in Brooklyn, people in Queens of every single race, uh, different genders, sexual orientations, uh, religious backgrounds. I have an incredibly diverse district. And you know, I'm just trying to do all that I can uh, to justify the confidence that they've placed in me. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, appreciate you, brother. Thanks a lot. Yeah.